Welcome to Real Talk, real estate discussions with Andrew Kirsch. In each episode, Andrew interviews industry leaders. We'll hear their real-time opinions on today's market, their background and unique career highlights, and guidance for newcomers into the industry. You can find this show at skalalkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Real Talk, Andrew Kirsch. Episode 18 of Real Talk. I was out last week. I had a good excuse. I had to go see my Northwestern Wildcats play in the NCAA tournament up in Sacramento. A great first round game against Boise State before coming back to earth and losing to UCLA in the second round. Um, Overall, very proud of my Wildcats. It's been an interesting couple of weeks in not just the real estate world, but the general economy uh, and the banking industry from Silicon Valley Bank to Signature Bank, First Republic Bank, Credit Suisse, who knows, maybe others. Uh, I'd like to do a podcast uh, in the future, uh, in the short future, uh, on, on the banking industry. So I'm going to try and line that up. What this means for the real estate world, um, it just means more um, uh, more concern, right? More uneasiness. And so transactions that were having a tough time getting done in, in just the economy that we're in and the interest rate environment that we're in, it's even more challenging. Um, some buyers are taking advantage of this uh, trepidation and choppiness and getting even more discounts uh, on deals that they're able to transact on. So we'll definitely um, uh, keep abreast on on what's going on in the banking industry and uh and hopefully do a podcast soon. Meanwhile, for this episode, uh, really proud to have Adrian Berger uh, of Cypress Equities Investments, the managing director over there. Uh, Cypress is a national class A multifamily developer. Uh, each year, they average about $1 billion of new construction. Right now, they've got 8,000 units in the pipeline. Uh, Adrian, uh, uh, Actually, our first non-U.S. Uh, podcast guest will talk about um, living in Australia, coming to the States here, the differences between Australia and the U.S., and of course, talk about real estate and construction and value-add projects uh, that he's doing throughout the country. I know you'll like it. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. I am here with my good friend, Adrian Berger, not Berger. But Berger, from <laughs> Managing Director, Cyprus Equities Investments. Adrian, how you doing, my man? I'm great, Andrew. How are you today? I am good. Um, so, look, I, I really appreciate you coming on. It's uh, it's just a, a really um, interesting time in the market. But uh, I think you're our first non U.S. born guest on Real Talk, so let's just get that nice. out of the way. Okay? Nice. We are, we are going international, and, well, and so why it. don't you tell our uh, audience where 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 did you get that you know fantastic accent? I don't think you got it from like um, Houston, Texas, or Savannah. Yeah, it's not from Staten Island, that's for sure. It's um, <laughs> I'm from Sydney, Australia, originally. And fortunate enough to make my way to the U.S. about 14 years ago to New York. I was in Asia before that. 
and I've been in LA for about eight years. So grew up in Sydney, great, great city to, to be a kid and great, great place to grow up. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunities outside of Australia and I just was following a path to, to those and that landed me in the States. So this is a random question, but where were you January of 2010? Jan- I, was in, I was in New York. Oh, so then we didn't see each other because I celebrated my honeymoon in Australia. So I just missed you by probably like five years. Only five years. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I had a great time, Sydney, Melbourne, Melbourne, and uh, Hamilton Island. Oh, Hamilton Island is beautiful. I took, I took my wife there. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Tell us sure. about Cypress Equities Investments. What does it do? Yeah, Cypress Equity Investments, we're a national institutional quality apartment developer and operator. So our headquarters is here in LA, and we have offices in Dallas, Denver, Florida, New Jersey, and Chicago. The company's been around for more than 20 years, uh, starting off by buying apartments here in LA. And then um, since 2010, we've been primarily focused on apartment development. And also more recently, you know, getting back into acquisitions again. So, yeah, we're just a, you know, a a great class A apartment developer. Uh, We do about a billion dollars of new development starts per year. And we currently have uh, about an 8,000 unit pipeline of of development across the country. Got it. So um, so you said 8,000 right now in development, or is that outside of California, or that's in total? That's the total across the country. In, okay. in California, in LA specifically, we probably have about 2,300 units in our pipeline, um, most of that in Santa Monica. And then we have a very large pipeline in Dallas and a, a, and a, ni- a nice pipeline in Denver. And we're involved in two master plan developments, one up in the Bay Area and one in Boston which will be sort of, you know, 10-year type continual development projects. Got it. And, and so, you know, the, the regulatory, let's just cut right to the regulatory market, sure. regulatory framework and structure uh, uh, and, uh, and you know, of California uh, and specifically Santa Monica. I mean, you are definitely brave and patient. Uh, what is the average time that it takes to entitle a project in Santa Monica? I think on average, it's probably around two, two and a bit years to get entitlements and permits in Santa Monica. I mean, it obviously depends on when you're actually starting that process and where there's sort of zoning code updates are up to. Uh, But when the zoning's in place and you can make an application to the city it's taking about two, two and a half years to get through that process to get a permit to break ground. I actually thought you were going to say longer. So uh, it, it used to be longer. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it depends on, you know, again, when you're catching the city and when you're catching what they're doing with their zoning code and which part of the city. So the downtown had an updated code and other parts didn't for a while. But generally speaking, it's, um, it's not as bad as it used to be. We definitely have seen longer entitlements. One of our projects took nearly five years to entitle. Um, that was via a development agreement, which you know is highly negotiated. Um, but you know, if you're doing more of a, a, a typical streamlined process now, it's about two, two and a half years. Yeah, and how does that compare to other parts of the country? 
Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Everyone, when we started expanding around the country, all these cities were very proud to tell us how, fa how much faster they were than California. But I think that those cities also weren't really prepared for the influx of, of developers from all over the country into these growth markets. And I think that initially some places were way faster. But I think in general, you know, most cities, and it's hard to generalize, and I don't like generalizing in our industry, but, um, you know, to get a site plan approval or an entitlement can typically take like six to 12 months in a city. And then the permitting is usually a little faster than it is in California. I mean, that's the part of the process in Santa Monica that's currently taking the longest. It's taking, you know, a solid 12 months to, to get a permit. Um, so, yeah, I think other places we typically see anything from 12 to 18 or 24 months, depending on the, on the market. And so everything that you, that, that, um, that Cypress equities investments that, that you guys are doing, is it ground up or, or I think you may have alluded to the fact that you might be now buying some existing product or, or. Yeah. I mean, the last uh, 13 years have been really principally focused on ground up development. I'd say in the last 18 months, we've been more and more focused on trying to identify existing assets as we were seeing, you know, cost of construction go up and, you know, we're seeing assets selling above replacement costs. We just kept, kept developing and keeping our eye on, on that. And obviously with what's happened with the Fed in the last nine months, uh, we've just seen a really big change in, in, in what things are selling for. And yet hard costs haven't really uh, diminished. They're sort of growing more slowly. It depends on the submarket again. Um, so we've, we saw an opportunity where we could start to maybe buy existing assets again, you know, below replacement cost. Um, but it's been, it's been challenging because, you know, obviously we're in a bit of a, a fluctuated market and capital's not really, uh, that active. So it's really about identifying, you know, really good opportunities that might not just be straightforward. Like I'm going to go buy this building. It's more, or maybe someone's having a bit of a hard time, you know, with their capital stack or their asset and we can come in and, and help and that way, you know, help them get out of whatever situation they're in. And that way we can become part of an ownership of that asset. So that's one of the ways we've been approaching it. Um, but yeah, we are also going to, we're also very interested in just buying assets as well um, and have some capital partners that want to do that with us. So how do you, I, I, look, we spend on this podcast a lot of time talking about the capital markets and definitely want to get your perspective. I would say before the recent Fed movement over the last nine months or so, how did CEI typically capitalize their deals and how has that changed in today's environment? So our, our most typical structure is on the development side, we get construction financing. Typically it was around 60% and the balance of the equity, we were bringing in an, an institutional third party uh, LP for 90% of that. So CEI putting up 10%. Um, that's made up of our principal's money. And, you know, we also have a family office that invests in some of our deals on the GP side. Before even construction, when you guys uh, would take down land, mm -hmm. uh, would you, how would you capitalize just, just the land, unenti the unentitled land, or would you wait and not take it down and purchase it until you uh, you got entitlements and then you would be ready for a construction loan. 
Yeah, it's a great question. So we, we do that. We do all of those things in different places. So in, in markets outside of California, like say Texas, Colorado, Florida, um, it's always, it's been more common that you could get a long, longer escrow, like an option over the land and really close once you've got an entitlement or a site plan approval or even a permit, if you can get that length of a contract. Um, you know, in places like LA where transacting quickly is more normal because there's so much more competition and it's just, that's just the way business is done here or has been done here for a while. We were closing on those deals with a land loan and our own capital. Uh, we were fortunate enough, uh, you know, during COVID, we had a very strong acquisitions um, effort, specifically in Santa Monica. And we had a capital partner that wanted to be, you know, within that strategy with us. And they, they came into those deals early and took down land with us. But that's very unusual. Um, so most typically, we're trying to find as much time as we can. So right now, actively looking to buy sites still in, in LA and Santa Monica. And um, most of the offers I'm putting on the table are trying to get a long escrow. Um, just It's just less risky for us and it's also better for returns. So we're, we're open to transacting in a myriad of ways, depending on what's the custom, but also what works for the deal. Uh, right now we're like trying to, like I said, get as much time as we can. Yeah. So is, so, so pivoting to just today, you know, what yeah. is the market like both for unentitled acquisition loans? Let, let, I don't want to do a here. I'm a lawyer, right? So I don't want to do a compound question. So, so let's just start with that. Is there a market today for unentitled land loans? Yeah, it's shrunk a lot. And I think that we're fortunate that we've got a, a great track record and reputation. So we have some very strong relationship lenders that are still open for business. Um, but the cost of that debt has really gone up tremendously and, you know, it's, it's impacting land value and it's making it very, very hard to, to do deals because unfortunately uh, land owners and land sellers, property sellers are typically the last people to realize or accept that the market valuation has changed. And, you know, a sub market like, like Santa Monica, for example, that's exacerbated. Um, so it, it becomes increasingly challenging when, you can't meet their expectations, um, and you know that's a lot of that's to do with just the, the, the cost of debt and, and the availability of that. Um, so it, it definitely exists, but it's a very small group of lenders at the moment. Yeah, and, yeah. and what what are land, non entitled land loans costing, and what type of leverage are you able to get? Just in I'd general, on average, yeah, on average, just like fifty percent of the land and your pre development cost, and then rates are sort of anywhere between ten and twelve percent. So, you know, it's, it's expensive. If you think yeah. about buying something in a place like LA or Santa Monica and you have two years until you can put a shovel in the ground and let's say you're all in cost to do that with land and, and pre-dev is $20 million, like you're spending, you know, millions of dollars just carrying land and that's got to, you know, that has a real impact. Yeah. And so then once, so now take me through uh, once you have an entitled site, um, how does the construction finance market, um, how is it today uh, compared to what it was nine, 12 months ago? And also the sources of equity, um, has that changed? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the construction loan market has also just shrunk a lot, uh, both from an LTC standpoint and from the number of lenders out there. So I'd say where we were at 60 or 65% before, we're at sort of 50, 55 
20% now, um, maybe you could still get someone a bit higher than that if you've got a lot of long-term relationship with them. Um, but it's it's challenging. There's there's less and less uh, groups out there looking to do that. I mean, we have we historically have only done non-recourse, and so we can still find that that those lenders. But a lot of our go-to lenders are you know kind of on hold right now. So uh, that's the lending side. On the equity side, there is le much less interest in development now than there was before. I mean, even towards the the beginning of 2022. You know, prior to even the rate increases, I think equity was starting to really pull back because I think sites were really expensive, costs were going up, and they were just a little nervous about that, all in basis. So we've been seeing that effect for a while. I think right now we have a few specific partners that would look at specific submarkets and specific product types, but I think generally it's very, very hard to find uh, shovel-ready equity right now. Yeah. You know, it's the the one. Uh, there's a couple of areas um, that we're still busy transacting. You know, construction is still one of them. Yes, it's slowed down significantly, but uh, capital providers' thought process and perhaps your own thought process is, you know, it takes what two to three years to build, another year to lease up, and so by the time you come to get to market to sell. Or to refinance, you know, we're now looking at 2026, maybe, right? And mm -hmm. and so we'll be hopefully well past what we're going through now. Is that what you guys? How how does that factor into the decisions that you are making? Yeah, we agree with that that, that philosophy. Uh, I think part of what we think we're thinking is that we would prefer to break ground in 2024. Then in 2023, we would love to break ground in 2023. We just think there might be more capital in 2024 for it. But yeah, I mean, the long lead time of development, like you asked the question before about are cities faster outside of California? And yeah, they might be a year faster or six months faster. But you know, to build a 300, 400 unit building, it takes kind of takes two years, you know, where, where, really wherever you are. And it takes at least a year to lease up. So yeah, you're talking about from buying the land to getting, you know, it stabilized at, you know, at least five years. And we agree. And we think that the fundamentals in many places are still pretty solid and that there's not a lot of development that's going to be happening, um, you know, in the short term here. And so we might find that once we work our way through this economic, you know, uncertainty and we, we start to get these, these, these markets again and all the, the new supply has been absorbed. Everyone's going to be like, we don't have enough apartments. And then everyone's going to start, you know, piling back in again. So it's kind of, that's the cycle. So we're trying to get ahead of that a little bit and, and strategically look for opportunities in markets that we like um, and hopefully structure contracts in a way where we can do the pre-development work while we're under contract and haven't closed yet. And by the time we get ready to close, with a shovel ready project, the markets are in a little bit more stable place and we can get out of the ground. That's sort of our sort of general thinking on the development side. And, and so in terms of the, the equity, uh, the equity side of things, as there's fewer and fewer capital providers. So how are you backfilling the equity need? Is it, is it through preferred equity? Is it through syndications and going to the private capital route? Is it, Co-GPing, I mean, what what are you what are you doing for deals that we're trying to get out of the ground, or 
Yeah. Or uh, deal, deal. But how about just throughout the whole portfolio as it's tougher yeah. to get capital? I mean, you go, you walk around these conferences, right? From yeah. IMN to NMHC to any of the uh, these others. And, and it's, they're crowded, right? Because we still have uh, all of our business development budgets. Um, but you're walking around and you're talking to the who's who of uh, institutional joint venture uh, equity providers and they're window shoppers, right? They're, right. they're, they're looking for extreme distress, something with a story, but they're really not transacting. Uh, I don't want to say they're not open for business, but they're ex highly selective. Yeah. And so assuming they are really not, um, they're not as many, there aren't as many uh, at your disposal, right? As opposed to a year ago, where are you going to find equity? Well, I think first first off, we're being much more selective about the things we're trying to control. And a lot of that is, you know, happening through conversations with some of these partners that we would be known very well, asking them. And we're, it's a sort of become more of a back and forth on, you know, what does a, you know, what does a great deal look like for you in this sort of category or this area of the country or et cetera. And then, you know, my job is to go and find that, right? Find that needle in a haystack a little bit. Uh, so we, we're starting off first by doing a little bit more upfront sort of qualifying on where they would transact and what those metrics might look like. And then really sitting back and assessing like, where can we potentially do that? Um, so that's sort of on the new business side of things. We've always been a very open, creative group when it comes to the capital stack structuring. And I think that comes from, you know, our principal down. He's, he's very, he's always been very strong on that side. And so we are very open to all kinds of structures. So we've done PREF deals, we've done land JVs, we've done straight purchases, we've, you know, syndicated our GP position, we've done, you know, a lot of the crowdfunding deals with a lot, a lot of those, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, and we've also been trying to find alternative sources of, of capital that might be a bit more longer term view or might not be traditional institutional, but you know, family office route, for example. So we're just, you know, trying to take this time to pick the right deals and then try to match those up with the groups that we're, you know, we've been communicating with. And it's tough. Like it's right now, no matter where you are in the country, there's a big disconnect between buyer and seller. And even if you do land something that you think is really good, then you got to go out and really convince that equity partner that it's something they should take a risk on today. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things right now. Yeah. And so when you're underwriting deals today, ground up deals, has your return on cost uh, equation or, or, or pro forma changed today versus what it was 12 months ago? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just gone up, right? It has to because the cost of capital has gone up. So where we might have been solving to, I don't know, five and a quarter, five and a half untrended in LA, for example, and, you know, assuming a four or four and a quarter exit cap rate and trying to get that, you know, typical 150 to 200 basis point spread. Um, we're now trying to get closer to a six if we can. It was super hard. And then we're expecting an exit of four and a half to four, seven, five, depending on which submarket of, of LA that's specific to LA. And, and that carries itself through. Um, we're also super conscious about basis. You know, I think that, um, Return on cost is a metric that we look at closely. Basis is a, is a metric we're looking at closely. And then also on the deal level metrics, you know, a lot of the LPs want a, a higher return, higher IRR, just for the perceived 
risk in the market right now. So it's you know you add all of that up, and then you also know that it costs more money to cost more to borrow money to do these projects, and you know you can see straight away land value that was here is now going to be there if at all. So it, it's it's made it very very challenging. Um, you talked about political environment in California. I mean the passing of these transfer taxes in um, LA and in, in Santa Monica has had a really massive impact on deal returns. I mean. To the to the tune of 200 to 300 basis points of IRR. So yeah, so I, it's funny the the LA one gets all the publicity. Uh, you know, over um, uh, five million dollar threshold, uh, and then a ten million dollar threshold. It ends up at five and a half percent tax over you know what it currently is, which is you know maybe forty five to fifty bips. So all in the transfer tax on a large deal is going to be six percent in the city of LA. What is it in Santa Monica? What did the transfer it's, tax it's five, I think it's five and a half rounded five and a half percent over eight million dollars. All right. So basically it's the same right. on the types of deals that that you're talking about. Yeah. Um it's it's a major impediment as I as I go through throughout the country uh speaking to clients at, at conferences and they hear this at least specific to LA, the ULA tax that, that comes into effect April 1st. And does Santa Monica has also come into effect April 1st or? It's already come in. It was, it was March 1st. March 1st. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the people who are not from here are absolutely blown away yeah. that, that we have it. And we'll see if it, if it stays. Um, there's, there's obviously a lot of uh, attempts to either overturn the, the law or, or to put a new ballot <laughs> referendum yeah. next year. Um, but for now, this is this is what you need to underwrite for that that yeah. your exit you will ha have lost five to six percent of your value um, because of uh, of these taxes. And uh, the hardest thing is on the is on the, the on the developer because you know when you go through the waterfall and you get to that last hurdle, like that's where all that money's going. It actually then goes just goes to the city instead of, and so you do all this time, you make take all this time and energy and effort, take all this risk. You know, so that's that's tricky. And then for me as an Aussie, you know, having to learn the, the politics of, of this city in the in the country over 15 years, it's also just very fascinating for me to like learn more about every day about this, the way the, the, the way laws are getting enacted in the state of California, for example, versus other places and the local, how important the local jurisdictions are. And um, so it's it, it, it's it's really it's really had a, a massive impact. And I'll give you an example. So like land value. Now, obviously, there's a, a myriad of factors affecting land value today versus a year ago, but you know we are able to pay um, probably half or less than half of, um, in land in Santa Monica than we could about a year ago, and that's a factor of you know interest rates and increased return on costs and IRRs from investors and things like that. But the transfer tax takes a, a huge bite out of that, so it it's really it makes it very very hard to convince a seller yeah to, to do a deal. So if, if land value has literally gone down 50% in 12 months, how are you even able to find deals? Because if I'm owning prime land in Santa Monica, and I would assume most of the time, I shouldn't assume, but, but maybe just ask this in a question, what's the profile of the typical seller of land in uh, of your developments? Is it a mom and pop family generational owned asset? Yeah, I'd say 75, 80% of it is that. I mean, I can speak specifically to Santa Monica where we've done the most number of transactions in the last two years. Um, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of long-term family wealth. It's 
multi-generational, a lot of trusts, a lot of families, um, a lot of sadly families that don't see eye to eye and, and that just adds a lot of time and, and, and difficulty in, in the process. Um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the inherited generation doesn't understand real estate. They don't really, they're not interested in the real estate. And so they're happy to move on from it, which creates the opportunity, but you've got to be really patient, you know, and you've got to like really understand what you're, what you're doing and understand the values of things and just make the best argument you can that they should sell it to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, <laughs> that's, and that's really the know, that's where it's tricky. So the reason why I asked the question is, if I'm one of those families and I see my net worth, or at least with respect to this uh, land in Santa Monica, go down in value uh, by half, uh, and I and I'm not forced to sell, and there isn't an internal family squabble, I just wouldn't sell. I would wait. I'd say this is Santa Monica next to the ocean. It's mm -hmm. going to come back in a couple of years. Yeah, and th that's a lot of the response that we get. So the the, the challenge is. You know, finding again, it's like a needle in the haystack is finding the situation where the site itself works so you can get enough density. So you can actually pay something meaningful for land and then figure out who the seller is and what what's motivating them or not motivating them. Um, and then trying to find a wedge into to do that. And and, you know, that's when you really work closely with third parties like brokers and attorneys that have relationships. And we're, we're very fortunate that we have a really good reputation and a great track record. So uh, it allows us to get in front of a lot of people and you've got to just got to kiss a lot of frogs, right? And at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we also were successful during COVID because I think there was a little bit more fear during COVID, uh, especially most of the properties or all the properties that we're buying have existing commercial uses on them. And we don't buy any existing apartment buildings and because you can't tear them down without going through that whole Ellis Act process. So, you know, we're targeting retail shopping centers and office buildings and those assets and those asset classes um, have been a little bit challenged. I mean, they're all tarnished with the same brush, right? Even though we know that some of those class, asset classes are still doing great, but um, those are the ones we target and those have had some challenges over time. And you find that a lot of these ownership groups are, tired of being in partnerships with people for a long time, or they're sick of California and they want to, they've heard about what's happening in Texas, or they've heard about what's happening in Florida and they, they hear that there's better returns there. So they want to take their high value Santa Monica real estate, get rid of it, and then go in 1031 into another state that's easy to do business in, where they get a better return, where they don't have to think about anything and can clip a coupon. So, you know, it's just about trying to find that those, those groups and, and it's hard. Yeah. Well, so um, I want to touch upon uh, a topic that, that you, um, uh, that we haven't yet talked about really. And yeah. that's uh, the conversion of office buildings into multi. Yeah. And we, I hear a lot about that, especially from office owners because they're scrambling. They're trying to figure out what to do with an asset. Talk about, losing half of its value. I think they've lost much more than half of their value. Downtown LA, you can now buy uh, large uh, office buildings for under $200 a foot, which is remarkable. Um, and and so the, the hot topic, 
I don't know if I'd say controversial topic is can you effectively convert these obsolete office buildings into a functional multifamily uh, structure? Have you guys looked into it? Well, yeah, we're looking into it right now. Um, we've looked at it over the years on and off. It's uh, really, it's, it, the answer is yes, but it's like very narrow band of buildings that I think would fit into it. And I think, you know, you talked about the cost to buy it, the dollar per foot cost to buy it. And I think that's a key driver. But but aside from the, the money, it's the what, what you can convert it into and how much square footage you'll lose because, you know, at the end of the day, these buildings were built as big floor, usually big floor plated office buildings that have, you know, four sides of windows. And if you're, you know, uh, graduated from, from college and you're an associate or, you know, I've, I've listened to your podcast and about all the law associates that get you know, stuck doing 100 hours a week, you're sitting right in the middle, probably near the photocopier with no windows. And, you know, that's just where you are. That's where the bullpen is. So when you think about what, what constitutes a you know a legal bedroom? You have to have a window, and so that automatically just starts to make things difficult. And the thing is, these buildings are quite deep, so you end up losing a lot of rentable square footage because you can't just have you know a, a very deep railroad apartment with one window. I mean, you can, but it's just you won't get the rents you need to to make it work. So that's one big element is like what's the shape of the floor plate and what what what's your loss factor ultimately. Uh, that's a really big driver. And then um, really the other part of it is one of the reasons we like development, and I know hard costs have gone out of control the last few years, but you know, you're know you signing a, a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price contract with a, with a GC, and you have some idea of what it's going to cost to build. And it's all new materials, right? So you don't have to worry that when you open up a wall, what's in there. And so that part of it also becomes a little tricky because then you've got to just really be budgeting in a, in a slightly different way. I think, I think it does work. Uh, you know, I think you look at places like New York City. When I first uh, lived in New York, I moved there at the end of 08. So pretty tough time to move to New York, move to the States, actually. And, the con and you know, the, the condo conversion and the office conversion market was huge because they had a tax abatement, basically, that really incentivized developers to buy these empty financial district buildings and turn them into condos. And they did really well. They were successful, a lot of them. Um, I think that... That's because it's helping the basis, and I think that's a big driver here, you know, as well as the uh, floor plate issue that I, that I mentioned. Yeah, uh, look, it's going to be um, this city, this country has a, a, a housing crisis still, and right. so you know we've seen the repositioning of obsolete uh, shopping centers into data centers, maybe industrial or other uses. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to figure out a way to make these office buildings that are now either obsolete or not being utilized for whatever reason, whether it's post-COVID, work from home, um, you know, people not wanting to be specifically in downtown LA, crime, homelessness issue. I mean, you look at Century City, Century City is now receiving all of the tenants from, from downtown LA. Right. Downtown has become uh, just uh, like an apocalyptic uh uh, area where vacancy, the, the state of vacancy is 30%, actual occupancy is, you know, less than half. So uh, you, you see all these buildings and, and with a with a housing crisis, uh, you know, how to repurpose it in an efficient, cost-effective way. So it makes sense for for the developer to to do it. Um, 
Yeah, in some circumstances, it's like it probably more there's more land value sometimes than there is going to be building value. And yeah, you now we were assessing one, and I the first thing I did was I looked how big the land was and how many units I could get, and then did a quick mathematical equation in my head and thought, oh, okay, I can probably get to that. And then you know what they want is three times that, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I just I, the idea of going through a pro you know a process of refurbishing and redoing an existing building that's not going to be perfect versus just scraping and starting again. I think, look, at the end of the day, like converting it to residential is not going to be the solution for every single building, you know? And I think that's, again, like there's a lot of like, oh, we'll just convert everything to residential. It's like not as, not as easy as that. Um, but for sure, a bunch will get done. And I, and I think it's great. Like, I, I think that a lot of those buildings have so much character, you know, look at some of those buildings that were built a long time ago and they're beautifully designed and they've got, great facades and they're very tall. You know, that's always a, it's very, it's in, in our opinion, it's impossible to build high rise in LA and have it financed. So to be able to own a high rise office building and make it a residential building has a lot of benefit. I think you can get a lot of good rent, but um, it's going to, it's going to be kind of the perfect building in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you ready for the world famous real talk lightning round? Yeah, I was thinking about the lightning around today and I was like, well, you know, I, I better do some push-ups and get myself ready. So well, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, give, given that you are our first Australian uh, guest, uh, it's going to have an Australian flavor in terms of some of the questions, okay? So, um, by the way, I think I mentioned you uh, mentioned to this, uh, this to you before, but my audience doesn't know. Um, in 2000, I graduated law school, took the bar exam, uh, wasn't cool enough to uh, to travel with friends of mine, I guess. I, I guess I wasn't well-liked. And so I went on a Contiki tour, uh, which is an Australian-based company, tour company, yes. I think. And on my bus uh, throughout Europe, it was one of these like 30 days, 15 cities, uh, 45 people on the bus. I think 35 of the 45 were Australians. Yeah. So, uh, for how many minutes of that trip were you sober? <laughs> well, <laughs> what I'm going to say is it didn't matter if we were in London, Paris, Rome, Venice, uh, south of France, Berlin, other cities. The first place that most of the Australian males uh, would frequent was where's the local Australian bar yeah. in these cities? So, my <laughs> first question to you is. What is the best Australian bar hmm. in Los Angeles? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. You can say it's... New York as well. Yeah. I... So actually my, my favorite one in New York, because there's actually not that many. I don't think there's really a specific one in, in, in LA, but there's a, there was a place in the Lower East Side called Dudley's. And that was like in the Lower East Side, a great little hole in the wall, um, but it had a really good, Australian style menu and uh, a lot of a lot of beers. Um, uh, yeah. Victoria, Victoria Bitter VB. They, they, I don't think they serve VB. There, there was, it's hard to get Australian beer here, um, but but they they were like an Australian sort of bar restaurant pub. So that that was, okay. that was one of my favorites. Okay, one uh, that was one a tough more question actually. I got to try to figure out the, you know. The, the, the guys that own EPLP are, are Aussies and that's a pretty awesome spot too. The, the restaurant on the level below is 
mimicked after a very uh, you know a very old famous asian style restaurant in sydney and, and that's a pretty awesome spot too got it all right one more australian question and then i'll get into my real estate lightning round questions okay if you could take one thing in australia that you just absolutely love and you wish the united states had it and vice versa one mm. thing that you could take from the united states and put it into australia so the best of both worlds, what would it be? Ooh, well, it's going to be from Australia. It's going to be food based. So I'm going to answer that with two answers. One is Australian chocolate is the best chocolate you've ever eaten in your entire life. Ah, we have okay. very interesting um, confectionery. So my favorite is called a caramello koala. It's in. The, it's a little little milk chocolate in the shape of a koala with a cute little face. It's full of caramel. It's absolutely delicious. Um, and then we have, it's kind of Australian, although it's Portuguese, but Australians kind of invented this concept of uh, Portuguese chicken burgers. And they're not, they're not like fried chicken sandwiches. I had to learn that, that, that difference. They're thinly sliced grilled chicken with like, chili and a beautiful soft bun and there it's 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 incredible so for years i've been like how do i bring uh, that to to the states and then i'm too busy trying to do real estate deals i can't figure that part out so i'd say that's what i would uh, bring bring from australia would be the food um the other thing that i think that i would love to have here in la is if we had a, a proper harbor with river system Oh it's yeah, like a big boating culture in Sydney. Yeah, like Sydney, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's the most like, beautiful yeah, city I've been to. Yeah, I miss that. I mean, you can go boating here in Marina del Rey, and but you know, you're you're in the Pacific Ocean, like that's it, right? Um, so I'd say those are a couple of things that stand out for me. And then from America, going back to Australia, I I definitely think that uh, the American can-do attitude of of anything's possible, and you could start from here and end up here and the meritocracy. And I think some of it's changed over time, but I think, you know, the idea that, um, you know, if you come as an immigrant, you can really kind of achieve whatever you, whatever you sort of work hard to do. Um, and then have people be like, wow, how'd you do that? Tell us how you did that. I, I, that sort of attitude I would love to bring back into Australia more. In Australia, there's a little bit more of a, um, they call it the tall poppy syndrome where they don't want anyone to kind of grow higher than anybody else. There's like a lot more, it's more of an egalitarian system where, you know, um, you can be successful. Just, you just don't show it. Don't talk about it. Like we're all, we're all successful, mate. No, it's all, all good. You know, like that. So I think that um, <laughs> that attitude would be great. Cause I think what America does amazingly well is, you know, we, we do big things, you know, you, you know, our attitude at our company is like, Oh, life science. Yeah, we can get into that. Why not? Why wouldn't we want to get into that? Right. Like, we can figure it out. And I think that's, you know, and Aussies have that attitude too. It's just the execution is, there's more scale here. So, you know, you, you can really get stuff done. So Got it. I don't know if that was a direct answer to the question, but. No, that's, I like that answer. I probably should have ended with that question, but let me ask a couple lightning round real estate questions. And it's sort of oh. of that ilk though, uh, of, you know, I guess, you know, things that you want to accomplish. So how about this? If, is there a market that you, that CEI hasn't gone into that you would like to get into in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think there's a couple. Um, Utah, Salt Lake City is a market we've been, you know, knocking on the door for a while um, and never been able to find our way in. 
Um, I think similarly in North Carolina, uh, those are probably the two that, that jump out. I mean, we, we have presence in about 13 or 14 markets around the country, but there, is, there are a couple that are, that are definitely on our radar, those two and, and a few others, but those are probably the two major ones. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, over the next couple of years, you're going to do more development deals or more value add uh, existing deals? I think we're going to do more value add, um, but not in the place of development. I think they're both going to grow. I mean, I think from our perspective, we have a very robust development business and a line of business. We've got, it's well-staffed. We've got offices around the country with experts in those local markets. We've got a great pipeline. That pipeline, we're never going to shut that off because like that's just part of our DNA and we love we love doing it. Um, I, and so I think that we want to try to acquire more and catch up in volume terms to that development pipeline. So just by the sheer fact that we're starting from a much lower base of you know assets under management, that's going to be more prevalent, I think. And I think also with with the realignment of 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 a basis, um, you know, and the opportunities that we think are going to happen just by virtue of what happened and changed so quickly in the debt markets, I think we're going to end up having more acquisitions opportunities. But we we still see you know a ton of development um, opportunities, and we believe in, in in the markets that we're in, and and we want to do both basically. Yeah. Um, all right. Final question here. Uh, what do you wish, what, if you could tell the, I mean, you're only 26 year old, 26 years old now. Right. So, so I always say, uh, yeah. So I always say, um, what do you wish you could tell the 25 year old self, uh, one bit of advice, the, the 25 year old Adrian Berger, uh, rolling around in Sydney, Australia. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that um, I was sort of later to realize that real estate was my passion and not just a, a hobby or, or part of our, our family business. Um, I would tell that Adrian to, to invest in, in real estate earlier and, and more um, and not be, not be so nervous about doing that. Obviously, do the diligence or whatever, but just have a bit more courage around you know, going for it and seeing, you know, and seeing, and seeing what happens. Yeah. Well, that's, we, uh, we like to be more, yeah. I think one of the things I love to do is to meet with younger people and, and I always encourage them to do that. I think that I'm fortunate enough that I've moved around a lot in different cities and different, uh, parts of real estate and different careers. Mm -hmm. And, and I think anything is possible. And so, I encourage those those people to like just go for it. You know, they're young; they don't have any responsibility. Well, any major responsibilities like like kids and a mortgage or anything like that. And so that's the time to take risk and and to and to take chances and have fun. You know, because the second before you know it, twenty years goes by and you're still having fun. It's just a different kind of fun. Uh, so you got to take advantage of that while you've got it in your twenties. Yeah, the the only difference is uh, in your twenties, you're 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 still up at two in the morning because that's you you just got home from the bars, and now for us, we're up at two in the morning, and that's because our kids wake us up, uh, and we're frustrated that we're up at two a.m. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's the same it's the same thing being awake, but different cause. But you know, like it's all it's all fun. Like that's you gotta you, you can't take it too seriously. You gotta you gotta wake up every day and just realize there's opportunity. And this is the other thing about what's great about America. It's like, you know, it's a land of opportunity. You guys have this great attitude. And so I think that 
um, there's opportunity always. And there's, I think whether you're 25 or 45, um, there's still room for, for fun and, and, and hard work. And I don't know, you just got to, you got to wake up and enjoy every day and, and take advantage of it. Well, Adrian, I, I truly appreciate you coming on to Real Talk. Uh, literally, there isn't one person in our community in LA and Southern California when your name comes up, you know, ev everyone uh, says great things about you. There isn't one person who could say uh, a negative thing. And 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 CEI is just such a has such a great reputation, and 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 you are you know part of that, and uh, not just locally but regionally and nationally, and so. Uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on my show and best of luck, uh, to the rest of 23 and, and, and years to come. Andrew, thanks so much. Very kind words. I'm really grateful to be on the show and, uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, Adrian. See ya. You've been listening to Real Talk, real estate discussions with Andrew Kirsch. You can catch prior episodes at scholarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and for sharing this show with others.